0: If Life is a Mystery, Who Done It? I'm Scott Carter. Welcome to Ye Gods. As the 2024 presidential campaign ramps up, it's fitting that today we encore my conversation with CBS News Chief Election and Campaign Correspondent Robert Costa. Of Bob's many virtues, the one that I may admire most. Is in an era where opinions are as plentiful as penny candies and about as cheap. His allegiance is to the truth, so much so that he's covered candidates on both sides of the political spectrum, from Trump to Saunders, yet no one can precisely tell you what Bob's opinions actually are. Later, my sermonette in my homily opinion will address the real life counterparts to the rough and rowdy Roy's of HBO's Succession. But first, here's Robert Costa.
1: Faith is something to me that dark, terrible moments it just bring you such clarity about why faith matters. And I respect those who don't have faith and don't practice any particular religion. And I wish them all the best when they deal with things. But for those who do have it, when you're dealing with this kind of a tragedy, it's nice to see how... Amid all the the darkness, there is light for people in a guidebook of sorts to, to navigating the darkness.
0: Welcome to Ye Gods, I'm Scott Carter. My guest today is Robert Costa. I've known him since he was a young Washington Post reporter and host of PBS's Washington Week. Now he's a correspondent for CBS News and co-author with Bob Woodward of the bestseller Peril. And at 37, he's still young. Bob, it is always great to see you and thank you for
1: giving us your time. It's always great to be with you. We've been having conversations for many years. Always good to have another one.
0: What's the biggest story,
1: the overview that you are now covering? I would put it in two words, American democracy. I cover politics, I've always covered politics, Congress, campaigns, the White House, now at CBS, and officially my title is Chief Election and Campaign Correspondent. But the title, while a bit long, probably too long, it does try to get at what I'm trying to do as a reporter, which is not just cover campaigns, cover the underlying election issues we're facing, and that covers so much ground in terms of voting rights, in terms of the truth, in terms of how political parties and political movements are emerging in this country and changing. And so I tried to spend my days investigating, talking to sources, but also getting out there and seeing politicians in action, kind of the old school way of covering politics. I think there is still value in talking to politicians, talking to voters, listening as much as possible. You were one of the
0: first reporters who covered Donald Trump, and this show deals with religion and faith. Why do you think self-described religious people were so drawn to him?
1: When you look back to 2015, Donald Trump comes into the presidential race, comes down the escalator at Trump Tower in New York, and he is immediately written off by a certain segment of the political establishment in both parties. But one group that was not writing him off, even at that early stage, was the conservative wing of the GOP, particularly the evangelical Christian wing, the religious voter wing, the conservative Catholic coalition inside the Republican Party. And I saw that early on. Trump, some people forget, had hired someone named Chuck Laudner to run his Iowa campaign in 2015, 2016. And why does that matter? Because Chuck Laudner was most known at that time For running Rick Santorum's 2012 Iowa campaign, and Santorum had coupled together a blue collar conservative populist message with his own conservative religious views to surge to a come from behind Iowa win, a narrow victory over Mitt Romney in the 2012 Iowa caucuses. And Trump, by hiring Laudner, was signaling that he wanted to get that Santorum group in Iowa to come to be the Trump coalition in 2016. And so much of what happened uh, in Iowa in 2015, 2016, and in places like South Carolina that have conservative uh, religious voters that are really dominant in the electorates, is that they were looking for a winner. And I had covered when I was starting out in 2008, 2009, how Mike Huckabee got a lot of attention back then in Iowa and elsewhere in conservative bastions. Four years later, Rick Santorum does the same. Uh, what what happens? Romney loses the presidency. Santorum doesn't, and Huckabee don't win the nominations in their respective times. And so, after losing to President Obama in 2008 and in 2012, so many religious voters who are of the conservative leaning were saying to themselves, "The courts in this country are shifting to the center or to the left. We're losing power in the judiciary. We're losing power in the Congress, and we haven't won the White House." And they started to expand their possibilities in terms of what they could consider for a presidential candidate. And what they were really looking for was someone who would provide them with the votes they needed in Congress and with the power and the seats they wanted on the federal bench. And it became much more of a political assessment for them. How do we win the White House? Uh, And they said to themselves, I talked to so many of these voters in Iowa and South Carolina, Nevada, and other, and other states. And they said, we're sick of the Republicans losing. Maybe Trump can break it all open and win a general election. And if he does that, maybe if he makes some promises to us on the court, on who he would nominate, we may not like his personal conduct, but shucks, it would be great to have a winner in the White House, someone on our team, someone who would do our bidding. And so I covered that evolution of the religious right moving away from someone who looked and sounded like them to someone who could win in their view. And where is that
0: voter with him now? They are
1: still intrigued by Trump, appreciative for how he nominated conservatives of their liking to the Supreme Court, how he worked with McConnell in, in the Senate, Republicans to overhaul the federal judiciary, but they're exploring their options. It's almost like he's an ex who They have had a favorable breakup with. They might get back together with again if the timing's right, but that doesn't mean they're immediately rushing back into that political relationship. I've been in Iowa over the past few days, back in Iowa, the home of the pork tenderloin sandwich, the home of the presidential caucuses, and it's evident that they are listening closely to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who made his first trip here in March. They're listening to Nikki Haley, the former UN ambassador who jumped into the race, and they're seeing who else gets in. They want to give a listen to some of these other candidates. Uh, in recent days, I went to the home of Bob Vander Plaats, uh, who is a, a power broker in the Iowa conservative religious world, and he said to me at his house a few days ago, it's an open field. He said, look, did Trump do a lot? Did he have a relationship with the conservative voter, the religious voter that yielded them a lot of policy wins? Yes. But he said no one, even former Vice President Mike Pence, should he run, even with his bearing and his long connections to the conservative evangelical wing, no one's guaranteed to win that coalition come 2024.
0: So as far as the evangelicals are concerned, their relationship with Trump is complicated. Um, You were... Raised in a in a Catholic home, I, I, and you mentioned Catholic voters a minute ago. Tell me how how much religion was a part of your upbringing.
1: No, it's it's interesting. My religious journey is not necessarily unique. I grew up in a Roman Catholic household. My father is a, a Catholic from Northern New Jersey, an Italian father, and my mother's of Irish descent from Connecticut, also raised in a Catholic house. So kind of an Irish-Italian family background. Faith was important to them. My mom went to a Catholic college in Washington, D.C. called Trinity, which is where former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi went. Uh, And I didn't hesitate to tell Speaker Pelosi that from time to time when I was trying to get her to make sure she talked (laughs) to me in the hallway of the Capitol. Remember where my mom went. But uh my dad went to Mount St Mary's which is a Catholic college in Emmitsburg, Maryland near Gettysburg and the Civil War battlefields and they met in Washington D.C. when my mother was in college and my dad was a young actually a college grad police officer in D.C. and they both went to Notre Dame Law School and so that was of course a decision by both of them to go to a Catholic law school far probably too much information for everyone listening but my point here is that Catholicism infused their own personal journey and relationship, and it also infused my own childhood growing up at Bucks County, Pennsylvania, in suburban Philadelphia. would go every Sunday to St. Ignatius of Antioch, uh, would go to uh, CCD, kind of the Sunday night school. But I always went to public school, uh, except for a brief time at middle school when my dad got transferred to England and we went to a private international school. I went to public elementary, public middle, and public high school, which I still believe were extremely formative experiences in my life. I don't believe I would be the person I am today if I had not gone to a public high school with about 4,000 students. It just was a total immersion into all the different challenges in adult life in terms of class, race, uh, gender, uh interpersonal challenges. I mean, you saw it all in the school I went to, Pensbury High School. I really learned a lot about life at that school. And then I decided to go to a Catholic university, Notre Dame. And that was kind of a a shell shock moment for me, even as a Catholic, to go to a place where I took theology courses, where so many of the students there had gone to Catholic school, parochial school. It was a little odd for me at first at Notre Dame to be in a, a totally religious environment where there would be a chapel in every dorm, and I enjoyed it, but it was just public school growing up in suburban Philadelphia. Church was something we went to on Sundays. Uh, faith was something we talked about with with ease at home, uh, but it wasn't something that lingered in every conversation. Uh, and I still am Roman Catholic, and I should go to church more often uh, than I do, but I, I do go, and I appreciate my faith. And st- staying close with Notre Dame has been important to me and to keeping my faith relatively strong. You mentioned going to England, I think
0: in 1998. And early on, you, you kind of began to define who you were with a tremendous sense of seizing opportunities or inventing them. So for instance, when you went to England, there was no student government in your school. So you worked with a teacher to help found a student government and you wrote the constitution and you ran for president, you were defeated by your twin brother. (laughs) You you come back to Pennsylvania and you begin your career in investigative journalism by doing an expose on where your fellow students are buying, where they're scoring their pot, uh, which was to the consternation of some of your friends because their parents were reading the article. At every moment of your life, going back to a very young age, you're seeing and oftentimes inventing opportunities for yourself, where does this come from? Is, is this part of the upbringing that you had
1: at home? I, mean, I just have a vivid memory of my father and mother taking me to museums growing up and going to the American History Museum at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. or going and walking around the mall, going to Philadelphia to see Independence Hall, And I really started to believe at a young age through reading different books, especially the nonfiction books my dad collected, he was a collector of just kind of modern political nonfiction, historical nonfiction, that greatness and excellence in public life, in politics, journalism, writing, was something I uh, was attracted to. I was attracted to the idea of leadership, to history, to people who had a sense of history and context and how things fit together. And I always thought that this would be a passion of mine as a hobby. And I never had an ambition to be a journalist. Uh, It was not something that I thought was a career that was really possible. To me, journalism was something that a lot of connected kids got into seemed to be a bit of a small pool and so i had a bit of audacity in at even a younger younger age i remember writing a letter to the general manager of the philadelphia phillies baseball team who i had met by just by chatting him up i think it was 10 or 12 years old at the spring training game i went to i just i spotted him in the stands and i went to talk to him And he invited me to come down to the stadium to hang out in the dugout and to walk around the locker room and to meet the players. His name is Ed Wade. To this day, if Ed Wade ever hears this, I appreciate what he did. Because those kind of experiences at a young age, just being able to have a conversation, look people in the eye, think about their work in a serious way, and not be weird or cagey or pretentious about it, really yielded fun experiences. All this is I'm trying to say is, With two parents who are great parents, supportive, my father's a pharmaceutical lawyer, my mom's a lawyer, has done some energy law and different things in the past, but have no connections to the media or politics. I always felt because I had a great upbringing and a great family, but no nepotism ties in any way, that I could take risk and do things with good faith and see where it all went. I think one of the
0: great lessons that people can learn in life is that when you have an idea and perhaps immediately assume that the world is going to be antagonistic to it, that, that is false, that, that very often the world may be either indifferent and allow an
1: opening for you. That is so true, Scott. My sense of life through reporting and everything else I've done is that the power in success and connection comes from seeing other people as human beings, as full human beings with heart, soul, emotions, families, pasts and futures, and not judging people by their title, by their name, by their age, especially by their look, their class, their perceived class. And my motto, and I've said this before a lot, but it's assume nothing. And that usually I apply that to reporting. Don't assume you know where the story is going. But I really apply it to people. I think about a lot Bernie Sanders. I was on real time with Bill Maher in 2014 with Senator Bernie Sanders, and you were there. And Bernie Sanders was so not famous really at the time. And after the show... Senator Sanders and I decided to get together for breakfast the next day, and we started what has been essentially a decade-long reporter, politician, rapport that comes at the end of the day down to respect, not support, not antagonism, but a respect for his humanity and that whatever he's talking about, he's coming at from a place of conviction. And I was willing to listen to him. He was willing to listen to me. And so when he ran for president, so many people didn't take him, quote, seriously. He wasn't part of the political class. He had wild white hair. But I said to my editors, I said to the Post, we need to take him seriously. This is a fully formed politician. He's a a real guy who has a lot of passion. And so I wrote the first story ever for the Washington Post in 2014 about his possible run in 2016, and it all came down to meeting him on Bill Maher and, and talking backstage and having that breakfast. And he's someone on the very left side of the spectrum. And with Donald Trump, my reporting rapport with him is the same way. I, I would listen to him, watch him, cover him. And with life, I, I, I see that all the time, that everything I've had to happen to me that's been interesting, like it came down to people connecting with people. And that's why journalism to me is an enjoyable you're ultimately sitting down with people to have a conversation and try to hear what are they trying to say? Where is the news? Where is the humanity
0: here? I think you told me that when you got out of college and you were deciding to go into journalism, that the the place where you got the only offer or the best offer was National Review. And because that was on your resume, people figured Future boss has figured that you were conservative, and that's how you, you got assigned eventually to to Trump. Am I remembering that correctly? With
1: Bob Woodward, it's just a that's an, <clears throat> something I always feel good about because that's a good faith relationship where we got to know each other very naturally when I joined the Post in 2014. And eventually he said to me in late 2020, Hey, I'm thinking about writing a, another book on Trump. You want to do it with me? And he and I had interviewed Trump together. In early 2016, we had established that we liked working with each other, trusted each other. Trust is everything, especially with Bob Woodward, someone who works on highly sensitive reporting projects. And I really enjoy talking to Bob Woodward and working with him. It's, it's to me the ultimate grad school. Yes, I went to Cambridge, but Bob Woodward, and talking with him and having a friendship with him, having him as a real mentor, a leader in my life. It's like getting a PhD in reporting because he just is the pro's pro when it comes to really doing the vigorous reporting. Just do the work. Don't talk about it. Just do the work. Think, read, write. Think, read, write. Think about the chronology. Think about what matters. Where are the questions that are unanswered? And how did I get to meet Bob Woodwards? because I ended up at the Washington Post. How did I end up at the Washington Post? They recruited me why did the Washington Post recruit me in late 2013, a decade ago now? Because they looked over every single one of the articles I wrote at National Review, and they recognized that I never once in about five years at National Review wrote an opinion, not once. Why did that happen? Because when I joined National Review in 2009, after leaving the University of Cambridge, finishing with my master's, I couldn't get any other journalism job. No one would hire me over the phone because I was over in England. They said, you have to fly back. I said, I don't have the money to fly back. You need to hire me over the phone. And National Review gave me a $50,000 a year job to be a fellow. And I got it over the phone. I said, I only have one requirement though. I don't want to be forced to write anything opinion-wise. I just want to be a reporter. And to his credit, and I really appreciate this to this day, Rich Lowry, still the editor of National Review, Said to me, I respect your point of view on this. Why don't you cover conservatism, cover the right for us as a reporter? And we were able to build out a real reporting operation at National sure. Review that earned the trust of Democrats and Republicans as a reputable reporting shop. And that's why I never wrote opinion. I didn't have the interest in writing opinion because it's not my style. But I, we were able to chronicle the far right at a time when very few people were paying attention to it, and. It's another twist of fate in my life that this one job that I'm able to get pushes me toward reporting on the far right, which was never something I was driven to do or inclined to do, but that becomes my first job in a sense. And who do I start talking to in in those early years? Donald Trump, Steve Bannon, Jeff Sessions, Stephen Miller, because they were the, the right, right, right wing that the mainstream media totally ignored, understandably really at the time, because they weren't making news. But in my small reporting beat, they were the beat. And that's why I really started to understand how power flowed inside the Republican Party, how the party institutionally was one thing, but in terms of an idea, a power source, it involved the, the right wing. The right-wing radio show Steve King would go on, the Iowa Congressman, involved Rush Limbaugh and his national base. It involved the advocacy groups, the dark money groups, the congressional leadership, but also the Tea Party operations inside the House. And all this culminated in late 2013 when the government shut down with Ted Cruz's fight over the Affordable Care Act. And I was able to break story after story because I had all the traps laid out as a reporter of who really was making decisions on when the government would shut down, when it wouldn't. I remember when I broke the news, the government was reopening in 2013 as an exclusive. The stock markets soared immediately off one tweet I sent. And I was so, one of my the favorite stories ever my, I sparked in my career, not to be egotistical, but just to take pride in one moment, was that CNBC, as I recall, wrote a story saying one tweet that set the markets off and it was my tweet because the traders knew I was coming in with credible information. And they trusted that what I was tweeting was right. And that's why they were trading off what I was reporting. And I I, I always took that as kind of a good sign uh, that people were really listening and reading. It seems to me that you bring a sense
0: of uh, sacredness to this mission, that it's, it's about the actual work. I think of the quote from John where Jesus says, my words lead you to truth and truth sets you free. And I think if you go to the truth, it makes a lot of
1: life easier. Oh, yeah. that resonates so much with me. If I've learned anything since I started in 8 09, I've just, I've had a reverence for the truth that has grown exponentially. Truth ultimately is everything in journalism and really everything in life. And what I mean by that is so much of my job sometimes, it's almost amusing to me when I'm in Iowa or in Washington, and you see there's a whole structure of people who are trying to cover up certain truths, to spin certain truths or evade certain truths. And that's sometimes the game of politics. But at the end of the day, in politics and in so many things, the truth is the truth. And the truth will persist. It will ultimately emerge. And it will be ultimately what lasts. And whether that's the truth of a presidency, the truth of of someone's character, everyone eventually finds out what it is. It may take an enormous amount of time. Sometimes historians are finding out the truth a century later, but the truth comes out. The truth emerges, and it's a journalist's job to try to get as close as possible to the truth, and that's something Carl Bernstein, Bob Woodward have talked about throughout their whole careers, the closest possible place to the truth, the most obtainable version of the truth. But I have faith in the truth that people eventually learn it, crave it, want it, and get it. You've mentioned the strength you derive from
0: your family and from your faith. That faith must have been tested. About a year ago, your sister's husband, who had been a college and NFL football player, died suddenly of a heart attack at age 35. This is an excerpt of what you posted on Instagram. You praised him as one of the best men you've ever known. You wrote, he was a champion father, husband, brother, son, and friend. He loved my sister and my nieces like they were God's gift, and he was just that to us. How did your faith help you endure this loss?
1: Well, it still still is. And I just pray for my sister and her two daughters to find peace amid the tragedy. It's, we're not the only family that's dealt with death and sudden death. Uh, it's tragic whenever it happens. and But when it happens in your family, you understand the idea of heartbreak and faith in a, in a visceral way. And you really need to have a steady hand or a steady boat to moor you. To certain values, certain truths about your life and your family. And I believe that since my brother-in-law Paul passed away, died, that my sister has been strong. And she's been strong in part, perhaps mostly in part, due to her faith. And Paul himself, looking back on his life, only 35 years old, he was a strong Catholic himself and went to church and took it seriously, Uh, went to Notre Dame. He was a prayerful, thoughtful guy. And faith is something to me that dark, terrible moments just bring you such clarity about why faith matters. And I respect those who don't have faith and don't practice any particular religion. And I wish them, all the best when they deal with things. But for those who do have it, when you're dealing with this kind of a tragedy, it's nice to see how amid all the the darkness, there is light for people in a guidebook of sorts to, to navigating the darkness.
0: Do you think that when we die, there is a judgment on how we have lived this life?
1: My personal belief, which I rarely discuss, but I mean, my personal belief is along the lines of the Catholic church, which is, yes, I believe there is a judgment at the end and I have a Catholic view of the afterlife. I try to be very careful in describing my faith publicly and I'm always happy to have a conversation with you and want to be candid because I am Catholic, but I really think it's important that it doesn't influence my work, how people perceive my work but I do have personal faith and people have the right to to know that I do have that faith. And I do believe there is a judgment at the end. And I'm always a believer in honesty. And I, I believe that that certainly influences my life in the sense that you want to make choices, not because you want entrance into anywhere, but because you want to do right and to do the right thing. I often think about my mother, not a priest or anyone, but my mother is telling me just do the right thing. And that message echoes a lot in my head when I, and including when I think about the afterlife in the sense that we have a a lot of confusion in this world, starting with myself about what it all means, what our own purpose is, and we're all doing our best to day in, day out, carry on and to do things that are productive and to be kind and to be generous to family and friends and colleagues. But at the end of the day, in my view, I want to do the right thing with the hope of living a long life. And if there's anything after, as I hope there is, that by doing the right thing with the right intentions, even if sometimes failing at that, you will have done well in the eyes of God. But I still am someone who, when I read about the Founding Fathers and their own questions about faith, I'm someone who's open to grappling with questions of faith. I don't have some kind of foundational certainty on all these different religious questions.
0: Two final
1: questions, and I so appreciate your
0: time, and I so appreciate the completeness with which you have considered every question. In stressful times, is there often a, quote,
1: Could be sacred, could be secular, that helps you. I think about something my dad once quoted to me years and years ago, where my dad one time quoted Harry S. Truman to us. And he said, Truman once said, I looked up the quote, it's essentially verbatim work hard, trust in God, have no fear. Work hard, trust in God, have no fear. That stayed with me my whole life because there's something about the simplicity of it. Work hard, trust in God, have no fear. That does guide me. The last question.
0: You are the universal curator who is going to suggest either a play or a movie or a book or a song or a painting or a work of
1: sculpture. What might that work of art be? Listen to some Ray Charles, maybe. I just think we could all use a little bit of soul and something about Ray Charles, I think that unites people. But I think maybe we all just go listen to the National Symphony or listen to a little jazz quartet, especially in instrumental music. And so if I was in the position of actually being a community leader who had one song to pick for a playlist, I'd pick something instrumental and let it play underneath, hopefully, conversations that were happening above it.
0: Bob, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you. Appreciate you taking the time. And now, today's sermonette, In My Homily Opinion. One reason I admire Robert Costa is that in a world overflowing with opinion and misinformation, he chooses to report facts. And on my podcast about ethics and spirituality, I also face choices. Though I take Christ's point to judge not lest I be judged, as I observe people, I can't help but judge their behavior as admirable or not, and I think that's what we all do. We do it when we watch movies or TV. On the first episode of this final season of HBO Succession, patriarch Logan Roy, played by the brilliant Brian Cox, is at a diner with his bodyguard. Logan muses about the afterlife. He doubts there is one. He thinks this is it. Of course, he admits no one can know for sure, but, says Logan... I've got my suspicions. Ruthless Logan built a global media empire by being mean to all, even his family. Or, more accurately, especially his family. Unless he needed them. Then he was all charm, but if the charm failed, he'd pivot to abuse. Whatever worked, business is business. And as I watched this miserable, curmudgeon share a meal with a worker whom he calls his best pal? I conclude no matter how many billions Logan has, he's lonely and miserable. Note to self, don't be Logan. In the same sermon in which Christ warned against judging, he said, No man can serve two masters. For he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other, ye cannot serve God and mammon. Jesus presented our life choice as binary. God is love, mammon is wealth, status, success, or anything that distracts us from love. Of course, the fictional character of Logan Roy has many antecedents. There's Shakespeare's Lear, who tragically couldn't tell which of his offspring loved him. And Dickens' Scrooge, who praises the ghost of his dead partner as always a good businessman, to which the spirit retorts, Mankind was my business. Interestingly, at one point, one of Logan's sons says, Why didn't Mr. Dickens write about Mr. Scrooge, who happened to be a huge wealth creator? So for the Roy family, A Christmas Carol is no heartwarming drama of a soul redeemed, but the tragedy of a good businessman gone soft. Of course, for me, it's also tempting to judge Logan against real-life media moguls the late Sumner Redstone of Viacom, or News Corp's Rupert Murdoch, who recently paid $787 million to avoid testifying under oath how respecting one's viewers means withholding the truth from them. So though I know I'm supposed to resist judging, I can't help but hope if I were the world's thirty-first richest man with six children, five homes, and four ex-wives, that in my ninety-second year on this earth, I would forsake brand salvaging to ponder how mankind is my business. In Unscripted, their book on Redstone, James Stewart and Rachel Abrams have a scene in which a young Redstone mistress asks the billionaire, why are you so mean to people? I don't care, Redstone replies. I'm going to hell anyway. Sumner Redstone died in twenty twenty at age ninety seven, certain about where he'd spend eternity. Logan Roy only had his suspicions. Email me your suspicions, or anything else at yeigspodcast at gmail dot com or follow us on all social media platforms at Yeegods Podcast. Reviews at Apple Podcasts may be read on future
1: episodes So until next time, be of good cheer.